your weekly dose of bookish goodness, sharing our love of books and printed papers with the world. Most of the books will be quite old, some will be rare, but others will be new. All of them will be unusual or notable in some way. It's your way to visit the library without visiting the library. We will focus mainly on Britain and England, but not completely. Each adventure starts with a library find, but ends who knows where. Join us in the library with the roaring fire and the leather chairs. Cigars optional. Hello and welcome to this episode of Library Discoveries. In this episode, we're looking at Master and Commander by Patrick O'Brien. Regular listeners will be aware that we tend to focus on a book, a single book, usually found in a library or my own library or in somebody else's library. Somewhere in the world, it's very loosely defined so that we can include all of my favourite books, even if they weren't from a library. Today's book specifically is HMS Surprise by Patrick O'Brien, which is book three in the Master and Commander series, sometimes known as the Aubrey Maturin series, for reasons which will become clear soon. What I have for you today is a handful of very poor quality second-hand paperbacks from the various series, Fontana, HarperCollins and so on, uh, all UK editions. We have HMS Surprise from the Folio Society. We also have a Hollywood movie starring Russell Crowe. And we have a little bit about Port Mahon or Port Mahon in Rioja, Minorca, the Balearic Islands. And we have espionage. That's right. Maturin is the ship's surgeon and he is a spy. And we have swashbuckling. Now people say, if you look at some of the stuff I've been researching for this series, Master and Commander is is piracy without swashbuckling or something like this. This is nonsense. There is swashbuckling. Okay, it's not Hornblower, but it is great. We will look a little bit at the life of Patrick O'Brien, about his works, about how Master and Commander came into being, about how he went on to write 20 books, of which the last was published after his death in 2000. It took him a few years to to edit it and, and just get it ready for publication. There is now a full set of five or six hardbacks uh, omnibus edition which i've got my eye on it's the cheap cheapest no it's not the cheapest way to buy all 20 books it's cheaper than if you were to buy all of the new first hand paperbacks straight off but the issue i have with the hardback series is it looks great on the shelf but each one has got three or four novels in it and it's quite heavy and people complain about the quality of the paper as well to try and keep it a bit lighter the paper suffered so great for showing off to your friends yes i've read patrick o'brien yes i've got all the books in nice hardback in a box on the shelf yeah not so great if you want to read them the hardback series is what you buy for yourself after you've read all 20 books and you want to show off about it well i've read about six of them i've got up to number 10 here in front of me some of those are ebooks some of those are audiobooks Some of those are folio books. For some reason, best known to themselves, folio have stopped doing the Master and Commander series. You can get them secondhand, but you cannot get them any longer from folio. And I think I've got some theories about that. I think they've let themselves down with this series, to be honest. So where are we? Master and Commander, where do you want to start today, Paul? We're not going to start with the book. That's usually the last thing we do. Uh, We could start with Patrick. Yep. Okay. So we're going to start with a brief, brief look at Patrick O'Brien. So what can I tell you about Patrick O'Brien? He is an English novelist, apparently also a translator. And although he was best known for Aubrey Maturin, which is the books we're talking about today, he has also written some quite highly regarded biographies. Master and Commander went on to be 20 books in the end. Partially completed, partially finished 21st novel was published after his death in 2000. Patrick O'Brien was born in Chalfont St. Peter. Yay! That's one of the reasons I got involved with Patrick is because... He was born not 10 miles from where this 
podcast is recorded. And he's not called Patrick O'Brien. He's not even called Patrick. He's called Richard Patrick Ross. And he died in Ireland. And he lived a long time in France. And his grave is in France. He divorced Elizabeth Jones at some stage and then married a lady with a very fascinating name called Mary Tolstoy. More later. So perhaps an unconscious reason for me getting interested in Patrick O'Brien is that he was born uh, to a doctor, but the doctor, Charles Ross, was of German descent and his mother had the Irish background. So it was a German-Irish child, the eighth of nine children. Unfortunately, his mother died when he was four. This led perhaps to a slightly detached childhood, some say. He was schooled at St. Marleybone Grammar from 1924 to 1926, while living in Putney. So they didn't last in Chalfont very long. And strangely enough, Patrick O'Brien began his writing career in childhood, which all great novelists seem to do. Uh, He started with short stories. Now, very interestingly, Patrick O'Brien published his first novel at the age of 15. Doesn't say whether that was with a legitimate publisher as such. It seems to suggest his father might have paid for it. But nevertheless, 15 years old, he'd written a novel and that's quite an achievement, let me tell you. He applied in 1927 to the Royal Naval College in Dartmouth. Didn't get in. In the early 30s, he did some pilot training for the RAF, but didn't get in, or at least didn't get in to do what he wanted to do, which was to be a pilot. What you see perhaps here is and early on, a swashbuckling hero, a guy who wants to write, fancies himself in the Navy primarily and then the Air Force because the Navy wouldn't have him. He worked as an ambulance driver in the Second World War. So for somebody like Patrick O'Brien, with that wish, that interest in the services, for a war to come along was probably not not terrible for his career as such. He worked as an ambulance driver. I'm not suggesting that a war is, is a good launch pad for a writing career, of course, but never mind. It has launched a lot of writers in the past. That's, should we do another episode on that? Okay, uh, where were we? Sorry. Well, he he got into intelligence and this is the thing. So I was asking a bookseller in London about John le Carre and he said, well, I haven't got any John le Carre first editions, but I have got Patrick O'Brien's coming out of my ears and I hadn't read it then, Master and Commander, but I had, I was aware of the movie. The, if you've seen the trailer for the Russell Crowe movie, it looks amazing. And even though I don't, didn't, wouldn't choose pirate films, you know, it was a great trailer and it, it really, I, I haven't seen the movie, but I, I do remember the trailer. And then this guy said to me, why don't you try Patrick O'Brien? And then I found out he was born in Chalfon, which is around the corner. He did start in intelligence after the Blitz and, and towards the latter stages of the war. He had something to do with France. He didn't want to say what, at least while he was alive. So he was somehow doing French-style, French-based intelligence. So that could put him into SOE could put him into the French section of SOE. But Nikolai Tolstoy, Mary's son, and therefore O'Brien's stepson by marriage, would only confirm for the Wikipedia article that I'm scrolling through here, that he worked as an ambulance driver during the Blitz. Let me, let's be honest here, you're not going to learn much from Wikipedia, but what we can tell you is that he definitely drove an ambulance in the Second World War. He definitely married Mary Tolstoy in 1945. The month after he got married, he changed his name to Patrick O'Brien. This was before he was a recognised novelist. This was before Master and Commander, which came along in 1970. So I wouldn't say towards the end of his life, but certainly towards the end of his swashbuckling adventures during the war, he became Patrick O'Brien legally. So it's not a pen name. Patrick O'Brien is his name. It just isn't the name he was born with. Patrick O'Brien did claim to have had limited experience on a square rigged sailing vessel and he he has had some exciting adventures on the water. Uh, He lived in Wales after the Second World War. Then in 1949, 
Patrick and Mary moved to Collioure, where he is buried, a Catalan town in southern France. Now, that's interesting because Stephen Maturin is a Catalan by birth. And now it's complicated with Maturin, but he is Irish-Spanish descent. Patrick is Irish-German descent. And they moved to southern France, which is interesting because that does tie up with the French intelligence fiction that he was pushing. If his own stepson doesn't believe that, then who are we to argue? But one of the things about Patrick O'Brien is, although he was a successful novelist, he was a somewhat famous novelist in in many, many circles. I think pretty much every English public schoolboy of a certain age has read one or more Patrick O'Brien's. It's sort of like the Hardy Boys for young men, I suppose, older boys. He was famously private. Now, let's let's be clear here. This was the 60s and 70s and 80s. A private novelist was not something to write home about. We didn't have Twitter in those days. We didn't have the internet. So all novelists before 1990 were private compared to where they are today. But even by that yardstick, Patrick O'Brien is often mentioned as a private recluse. Not not the J.D. Salingers, but he does have a bit of a reputation at home. I don't feel that I have any insights into this, and I suspect it would be better simply to focus on the books. Uh, he continued to work on his naval novels until his death. He spent the winter of 98-99 at Trinity College Dublin, where he died on the 2nd of January 2000. He was buried next to his wife in Collioure, France. There is some kind of society in Collioure which has been entrusted with the contents of his writing space, including Patrick's books, papers, desk, pens and ink. We're off to Collioure to see O'Brien's ink. Fabulous. O'Brien claimed to have written his novels with ink and quill. Well, we've just seen that the writing desk and ink is, is still there. In other words, he hand wrote the first 18 books and all of those 18, so he avoided typewriters and word processors, all of those 18 have been acquired by the Lilly Library at Indiana University. Only two remain in private hands, a man called Stuart Bennett. He donated his correspondence from O'Brien to the Lilly Library, as we've seen in Indiana, and he also has the manuscripts in that collection for Picasso, one of his memoirs, and Joseph Banks, which the Folio Society also publishes at the moment. Now, Joseph Banks is also an interesting guy, but not for today. And as you would expect, Nikolai Tolstoy possesses an extensive collection of manuscripts, including the second half of Hussein, short stories, letters, diaries, and so on. After his death, Tolstoy produced two biographies. Round about the time of his death in 2000, Dean King produced Patrick O'Brien, A Life Revealed. And that was the first book to document O'Brien's early life as Patrick Ross. Not even Patrick Ross, it was Richard Ross in those days. So Richard Ross became Patrick O'Brien way before he achieved fame as a writer. And I'm sure that the biographies can tell us more about that. And I'm already sensing a second episode here, to be honest. I think it's easier to come to a novelist after their death, because if you come to a working novelist, you get issues like with Amos of jealousy, rivalry. You can't quite tell the wood from the trees. There are issues with a living novelist. If you deliberately or accidentally come to a novelist after their death, you know exactly what they've written, you know they're not going to write anything else, and you can look at their works and decide where you're going to start. Anybody who wants to learn anything about Patrick O'Brien needs to read these books, and you have to really start with Master and Commander. Here we have the history of the first book and how it came about. Now, the interesting thing is, I say interesting because everybody compares Aubrey Maturin to Hornblower for obvious reasons. 
We're not talking about Hornblower today. The guy who wrote Hornblower, C.S. Forrester, died in 1966. So there was no more Hornblowers. And of course, any kind of swashbuckling piratey thing, uh, you know, look at Pirates of the Caribbean, is going to be popular to young children, boys in particular, perhaps. Are we allowed to? Yeah, well, we've done it now, haven't we? And blokes, are we, are we allowed? Well, it's just a fact here. Yeah, we're allowed to say facts, okay. Is it a fact or is it an opinion? It's an opinion, isn't it? Well, somebody else can deal with this. 1960, O'Brien wrote two seafaring books for children, The Golden Ocean and The Unknown Shore. A few years later, For Forrester dies, and a year after Forrester's death, O'Brien starts on Master and Commander at the suggestion of a US publisher who I've never heard of, J.B. Lippincott. J. B. So an American publisher read a children's story by O'Brien and said, our guy who does this has just popped off. How do you fancy taking his place? I didn't know this. Off he goes and publishes the book by with Lippincott in 1969. So they were desperate for Hornblower to continue. I have to say, based on what I've seen about Hornblower, there's nothing at all like Hornblower. So you can forget that straight away. Boats is the only thing they've got in common. At the time, Macmillan was the UK publisher of O'Brien and they uh, rejected it. And this is very interesting to me as a recent convert because it was too full of jargon. So Macmillan said no. And then Collins took it up in 1970. So it had a year to come out in the UK. And it did well enough to allow them to publish future books. But it was not well received, not critically acclaimed or anything like it. And then Lippincott carried on with Post Captain in 1972 and HMS Surprise, which is meant to be what we're talking about today. The books just did not sell. Uh, Lippincott signed the books over to Stein and Day for the Mauritius Command. Didn't help. And they stopped publishing in the US with Desolation Island in 1978. This nine-year adventure with an English novelist just did not work in America. Now that thing about jargon is very interesting. We have to talk about jargon. We're going to talk about jargon now. So if I just pick one of these paperbacks up, hopefully you can hear me. No, not that one. This one. Yes. If you get the, I have to say, if you're getting second-hand paperbacks or new ones, get the HarperCollins ones. I much, after deliberation, prefer the covers because they're more modern. But the HarperCollins ones have a picture of a ship with its sails, and there are 21 of them. Interesting that the number of sails on a sailing ship is the same as the number of books Patrick O'Brien wrote about them. 21 sails, and I defy anybody who's listening to this to name more than about three of them. The obvious ones, perhaps, are the stay sails, top sails, the mainstay, and so on. But did you know about the mizzen stay sail? Now, the mizzen area is towards aft, so it's it's just behind the midships. The rearmost one, number 19, is, I'm not kidding, the spanker. So uh, pub quizzes, the rearmost, aftmost sail on a square-rigged sailing ship from the 18th century is a spanker. Hopefully the microphone picked that one up. The tallest or highest one seems to be number 14, but it could be number 11. 11 is the main top gallant stay sail and 14 is the main top gallant. So the stay sails are smaller. Anything main is a gigantic square sail. And then at the front, you've got the jibs and the four sails. So you've got your, your jibs, your four sails, your main sails, mizzen, and then onwards to the back. All I'm saying is that at the beginning of the HarperCollins paperbacks and the ebooks, which they're based on, have the ship 
and the sales. And if you know that, that is all you need. That is the only jargon you need to know to understand these books. And I, because I was reading the ebook, I didn't even remember that there was that picture at the front because I was reading the ebook. So, you know, if you read ebooks, you'll know about this. So I read the whole of the first two books and never even knew what the, where on earth they were talking about with the mizzen mast and all this business. And it doesn't matter. It really does not matter. You get into the lyricism and the poetry of the words and the descriptions. You don't need to know exactly what they're talking about. The other thing about the Harper books, which I like, is that on the back cover, there's a list of all of the books titled and numerical series of those. So you know exactly where you are in the series. You know exactly what's been and what's coming. You've got the picture of the ship. Now, there was a time when I preferred the covers on the Fontana books, but Fontana's a Harper imprint now anyway. The good thing I like about really modern books is they always credit the illustrator and the cover designer and everything, and you can tell exactly what font it's all in and everything. They didn't used to do that. There's a really famous cover designer who's done all of the early, and when I say early, it's at least 10 or 12 of them, all of the early Fontana books in America and in the UK. Jeff Hunt, right. You see, that's, again, that's the HarperCollins one telling me it's Jeff Hunt. So Jeff, if you're listening, I like all of your covers, but there's something about this HarperCollins one, the new-ish, the newest, shall we say, that beats the others. And I think it's because, I think it's because the point of view seems to be more dramatic. The The early covers look more like paintings and the newer covers and the ebook covers look more like action scenes from a movie. I think that's why I like them. There's various flavours of these, by the way. Sometimes the font's in gold and made to look sort of 3D. The ones I'm looking at, different sizes, by the way, you'll find different sizes too. The ones I'm looking at, we've got a mass market paperback size, which is normally about eight by five or something. And then I've got a larger book, not a trade, but a, it's not a nine, six, but it could be an eight and a half, five and a half, you know, it's that kind of thing. So we're going from a pocket paperback up to this slightly larger one, which I prefer even though it's less portable. And then you're up to your folio hardbacks and your big uh, shelf filler there as well, which has all 20 books in five volumes or four volumes. What was I saying? Jargon. Yes. So jargon, important, but not essential. If you understand the jargon, good for you. I tell you, by the time you get to H, it's a surprise. You'll know exactly what a mizzen is, but it will not hold you back. If your brain can just let the jargon go past, it's just like reading any kind of Frederick Forsyth type book, Tom Clancy. The jargon is not important. So HarperCollins, well done. Macmillan, fool you. You've missed out on 20 of the best modern uh, novels about ships and about the Napoleonic Wars. So big mistake. And so we move on to the Hollywood movie starring Russell Crowe. This is called Master and Commander, but it has a subtitle and the subtitle is not Treason's Harbour. The subtitle is The Far Side of the World, which is book 10. So we have what purported at the time to be a franchise, and that's a good start to pick a series with 20 or 21 books, 20 and a half. However, they start with book 10, uh, which isn't a book I've got to yet. Far Side of the World is really the second half of Treason's Harbour, that those two sort of fit together quite nicely as a single story. But the great thing about these novels is the driving friendship at the middle of them from Aubrey the captain, and Maturin, the surgeon, stroke spy. That partnership drives all of the books, but that's freed up O'Brien to make some of them sequels. So you'll see the, bo- the book that I'm looking at in a second with Paul here, HMS Surprise. That ship is a big part of the story, The Far Side of the World, which then made its way into the movie and characters come and go and come back and they look back on their previous adventures together so it's a it's a whole world it really is a complete world easily on the level of Tolkien I have to say easily in that 
level of complexity where you've got these two guys, very different characters, big friends who travel the world together. Within that framework, O'Brien's told us or helped us to understand the history around the Napoleonic Wars of the 18th and early 19th centuries, even though in most of these books there will be an author's note that says, well, hang on, guys, if you know anything about these wars, you might recognise this battle, okay, but that's not the battle that, I, that it, it's portrayed in the book. In other words, I've tweaked a few things, this is what I've tweaked. So, yes, it's like that, well done for spotting it, but no, it's not like that, and this didn't happen and that didn't happen. So they are novels, heavily researched. There's no question that Patrick O'Brien was an expert in Royal Navy at this time. And that shows through in the quality. You don't need the jargon, but you will learn some of the jargon and some of the history. And it's a fascinating history, which could then lead you on to Hornblower. It could lead you on to even Pirates of the Caribbean. Anyway, I'm meant to be talking about the film. So the film was not successful. Yes, it broke even. Yes, it made an extra 50 million or so. But a Hollywood movie that costs 150 million, about half as much as Titanic, which was then the, the world's most expensive film, I believe. It was certainly one of the longest. It's a long two-hour-plus movie. You want to look at at least 500 million coming back from that, and they didn't get even half. So it, it came back at around 210. So with a film with this budget, with Russell Crowe, at the time it was produced, based on these massively successful international stories, should have been the launch pad for a whole raft of these movies, and it just never happened. For whatever reason, and people like Christopher Hitchens have said it's because they miss... Maturin. They, they've taken on the Aubrey Maturin novels and they've only looked at Aubrey and they haven't got the friendship. They haven't got the connection between them. They've made them look very shallow for, in order to give them the vehicle for the special effects movie and it's fallen flat. And audiences, even if they don't understand why it's fallen flat, they can tell a flat movie. And I think that although the trailer looks amazing, when you've seen the trailer, you've seen the film. And that's a disaster for a film that they want to turn into a franchise. So uh, we didn't have Johnny Depp either, of course. Russell Crowe is very good, but he's no Johnny Depp. So these books are absolutely revered by countless, countless people in Britain, millions of people around the world. And yet they made a complete hash of the Hollywood movie. Well, that's never happened before. Now, has it? OK, so that's a look at the books. Uh, more to come, I'm sure, in future episodes. Look on the blog, all the rest of it. Go to the website, see the show notes. But now it's over to Paul for a look at the Folio Society edition of HMS Surprise. Thanks, Paul. So I have in front of me HMS Surprise by the Folio Society. If you've never heard of the Folio Society, then you're probably listening to the wrong podcast. Or you might be outside the UK, I suppose. So let's talk about them. They produce fine editions of typically classic works of history, literature, non-fiction. And they all pretty much hardbacks. I think they are all hardbacks. They come in a slipcase, which is unusual. They're, they're my only books in slipcases, really. Um, they are fine editions, which means that they are really nicely done. New covers, sometimes with a new introduction, illustrations typically as well. Although the Aubrey Maturin books have photographs, not illustrations. And I think that's a missed opportunity. I think if they had done the picture of the ship, the square rigged ship in the beginning with the 21 sails, got the author's notes, they'd got the illustrations uh, done by a really nice artist, maybe our friend Jeff, who did the covers for the paperbacks. I think they'd have been on to a winner. As it stands, none of these are available from the Folio Society. 
but many of them are available secondhand and a good number as well. I've got HMS Surprise because it was a present and because that was the book that I hadn't read. So when I started reading these books, I read the two, the first two, A Master and Commander and Post Captain on, on Kindle because they were cheap. Then I went for HMS Surprise as the hardback. I was thinking maybe I wanted all 21 from Folio, but then they didn't do them anyway. And then I saw there was a hardback which was a bit cheaper for about £120 with the full set in five hardbacks, but the quality of those is low in terms of the paper and so on. So anyway, HMS Surprise, really nice cover, blue, gold, you would expect it to be blue. In the in the first bit, there's a map of the area, Bay of Bengal, Sumatra, East Indies. That's where the action happens in HMS Surprise. The illustrations are missing, but there's some nice photos. Baskerville font, Abbey wove paper. Well, a wove paper is pretty much essential for a book in Germany. Well, that's a shame. This was the third printing in 2010. So they did well for a while at the folio. For some reason, they've drifted out of focus, perhaps because it's now 20 years since Patrick O'Brien died. So these books are definitely historical fiction in, in many senses of the word. 1973, this one was written. So it's the third book. It's not a typical library discovery. It's not foxed. It's not dated in any way. It smells of brand new paper because it's been in the slipcase. So it smells like a brand new book. It is effectively a brand new book. I have read it. HMS Surprise is not the place to start. It's not amazing. It looks fabulous on the shelf. And if you had 20 of those, that would look incredible. It really would. Slipcase or no. This section is shorter than normal, but the other section has been longer than normal. If you were looking for a recommendation, I would say, obviously, there's 20 books. Start with book one. You have to start with book one. Do not start with the movie. The audiobooks are very good. The audible editions of the books are very, very good. And you can do a lot worse than get the Kindle ebook with the audio accompaniment. That is a very good way to do this. I found that the jargon was less of an issue on the audio compared to the reading it, the text. Don't expect a tightly plotted 20 book series. You know, it, it was written one at a time. It was the American publisher's idea, not Patrick O'Brien's, although he had written children's stories in, in this area before. So it was from the get go a commercial enterprise which failed in the US, but thank goodness it did really well in the UK. Not surprisingly for a British author, European author, uh, that he did well with a book about the British Royal Navy, but it, nobody could have predicted 21 novels and a massive, massive Hollywood movie with Russell Crowe. One of the most common book series you will see in any secondhand bookshop. Patrick O'Brien, as a novelist, is a genius. He really knows the time period. He knows how to tell a story. His characterization is amazing. Master and Commander is fabulous, even if, like me, you're not somebody who is drawn to naval historical fiction at all. It has the world fully realized in the same way that Tolkien does. And it is absolutely top draw material. It's very, very good stuff. So hopefully that's whetted your appetite. Um, yeah, start with Master and Commander. Start with the ebook. Start with an old paperback, whatever you want to do. Uh, but this is the folio edition from 2009. They printed it three times, so a lot of people bought it, perhaps in the expectation that all 20 would, would come along. So that is our special episode on Patrick O'Brien and Master and Commander, otherwise known as the Aubrey Maturin series. And we hope you've enjoyed this podcast. See you next time. Thank you. Library Discoveries is available wherever you prefer to subscribe to your podcasts. Loxley by PC Detman is available from all the best bookshops and online outlets in audiobook, paperback, and ebook. Paul Loxley is an average spy from the north of England 
To keep him out of trouble, Spanton of MI6 sent him to a private girls' boarding school in the Chiltern Hills. Unfortunately, as so often in the past, trouble found him. The pupil he was sent to watch was me, Niku Hayek, and I absconded. They think it was something to do with my Iranian father, an arms dealer and international man of mystery. Anyway, we followed him to Hong Kong. My French teacher, Miss Leclerc, turned Loxley's head. And was that my fault? No. Can Loxley defeat his own demons and revive his career? Probably not. Not if you ask me. He's toast. <laughs> 